It goes A's for ambition. Be what I want to be. See past the situation that's in front of me. Doubt is an enemy. Zep, we say fuck them. The irony is they inspire me to love them. G is past go with ignite the cash flow. When eights is put your heart and whatever's your last hope. Hey there and welcome to Grit True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories. The contemporary personal narrative kind of story and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these storytellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. We are nearing the end of season number three, which has been dedicated to grit talks and the best of... Today we have got three stories from our Mental Health Happyish Hour open mic. The first is by Sharon Eisner, who lives in North Carolina. The second, Nishama Franklin, who's up in Northern California. And our final story is Linda Durrett down in West Virginia. Check the show notes for all things upcoming and other ways you can support this podcast. Sharon, Nishama, Linda. Let's dive in. I have a weird relationship with death. Growing up as the child of Holocaust survivors, death always seemed relatively close. There are a lot of stories in my family about how people almost died or how people were there when people died. So growing up, I felt like this could be like when I was on a plane, I'm like, oh, this could be it. When I was, you know, in the waves, I'm like, well, it could be a shark. This could be it. So a lot of this could be at moments. And I've noticed as an adult, I'm still somewhat morbidly preoccupied so that when I go on a plane, I still say goodbye to people. And I do it in a way that's not scary, but I literally say goodbye. I'm like, hey, if anything happens, don't worry about our fight. Don't worry about whatever. Every single time I get into a situation that could be dangerous, I get a little nervous because I left my room messy. I think about what kind of writings I left around. And most of the time, I don't want to go. Most of the time, I think it's a good life. I love my life. I don't want to go. But there was a time when that wasn't true, when I was actually disappointed that I didn't die. That was, the time period was the late 1990s. I, uh, moved to Israel for six years. I was pretty depressed. I'd left a PhD program. I was pretty much striving to figure out the meaning of my life because I grew up with people who were very different than I was, grew up in kind of a a ghetto or people who turned religious, born-again Jews. And I kind of had in the back burner of my mind, well, we have the intifada going on. Buses are blowing up every week. Restaurants are blowing up every week. It's very possible I could die here. And that didn't feel bad. That felt okay. Because here's the deal. If I committed suicide, which was like on the fringe of my mind, if I committed suicide, everyone who knows me would be so upset forever. That would never go away. They would all think it was their fault. They would all think, what could I have done? And I've given them a gift of lifelong guilt and pain. And I can't do it. So that's not, that's a no-go. But let's just say I die in a blown up bus. I'm like a freaking martyr, man. I'm like, hey, wow, she's going to be remembered beautifully. You know, nobody remembers my flaws. And life would be over. The pain that I was feeling at the time would be over. I thought, you know, that's not bad. So while I was in Israel, it was a close call twice. I was taking an English language, I'm sorry, a Hebrew language class. 
I had to get the bus every morning at 8.30 to get there at 9. And I did it. I dragged my ass in there every morning. Well, one morning I was just too tired. And I look at my clock and it's 8.15 and I'm just like, I'm just going to get there at lunch today. I can't deal. Go back to sleep. And right around 8.30, boom, like the whole apartment's shaking. And I'm listening and I don't hear anything. And I'm thinking, was that a sonic boom? Like, what the hell was that? And then all of a sudden I hear screaming. And then all of a sudden I hear sirens. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I go outside in my pajamas. All the neighbors are coming outside. Turned out a block and a half away on Aza Street, the number 19 bus that I was supposed to be on blew up. It blew up a block from my stop a little bit after 8.30. So who the fuck knows, but I was supposed to be on that bus, right? And I'm just standing there in front of my house with my pajamas on. And the neighbors are saying we shouldn't go because they had a they had a thing in Israel that when a tragedy happened, you stay away to let the police and the ambulance in as close as possible. We're just all quiet, listening to the screaming and and just just horrified. And I'm just thinking, what just happened? What the hell just happened? By the way, I wasn't entirely certain that I was happy it wasn't me. I felt a vague disappointment because that one made the news. The bus actually was brought to the Hague. And I thought, wow, that, okay, that could have been me. It was a near miss. And I didn't know how I felt about that. Then the other one was a Saturday night. I was with my roommate, my friend called, and she said, you know, let's go out. We were planning on going out to a little restaurant called the Hillel Cafe, the Cafe Hillel it was called. So she came and she picked me up and we went in a cab. Nobody had cars there, right? And my roommate said, hey, where are you going? And I said, Cafe Hillel, I'll see you later. Then while we're in the cab, we realize, holy cow, the Harry Potter movie has come to town and we have not seen it. We need to change directions and go to that instead. So we literally tell the cab driver right then and there, oh, change directions, go to the mall, we're going to go see the movie. I turn off my phone. This is my second year in Israel. I didn't realize at that time, you don't turn off your phone ever. Turn off my phone. I get out of the movie two hours later, look at my phone, I have 27 messages. What the fuck? And they're all panicked. Well, what happened was shortly after I left the house, maybe half an hour later after I got into the movie, somebody walked into the cafe filled with an explosive device, blew themselves up, killed I don't know how many people, including a a father and a daughter. The daughter was scheduled to get married the next day. I remember that. Cafe Hillel was a shambles. So my roommate knew that I was there. She tried to call me. My phone wasn't picking up. She called my family to see if they were in touch with me. By the time I got on the phone, close to two hours later, People were at the morgue looking for me. They were in the emergency room. They were at the morgue. And again, I didn't know how I felt. Part of me felt, I'm going to be honest, part of me was disappointed that I had missed out on an easy way out. Now, when I think about ways I could die, when I think about COVID, which I'm very at risk for, and I notice I'm being very careful to stay in, I guess something switched. Something changed up. No matter how glamorous death could be or would be, I guess I prefer not. to follow me so a is to attempt to be the change you want to see and d is to be different but tell us what you mean like are you one of them good guys or you one of us fiends either way you gotta eat Uh uh-huh elevate your mind right because that is for the fine life and that's how you define life but i say d is get back to your home and h is help the people that didn't help to along oh yeah fuck it we go back to f because that's mental health or mental illness uh is shot through me from the very beginning and my whole family as my husband used to say we have bad brains. When I was growing up and 
this story goes back, you know, a good 65 years. Um, I was the identified patient in the family. I had had some therapy. My parents didn't know what to do with me. I was pretty terrifying a kid. And then I didn't graduate from high school. And I was hanging out in their plush apartment in Central Park West. And it all seemed hopeless. So I made a half-assed suicide attempt. I mean, thank God it was half-assed because I, you know, I could have died and I could have destroyed my organs. But no, it was just taking a whole bunch of aspirin and I got pumped out. And then my parents needed to do something with me. We have an uncle in uh, upstate New York. And they said, what do we do with her? And he said, there's a place in Pennsylvania, the Children's Service Center. Send her there. And so they sent me there. And what an amazing and functional shock it was. It was mostly boys and they were much, you know, I was by then, you know, like 17, but they were, you know, from like 10 to 14 and they were a mess. It's possible I was the only girl. And the counselors there were young women. And all of a sudden I identified with them. And, and I realized that if I got away from the scene of the crime, which is what I thought was my parents' apartment, I might just get better. And so I decided I was <clears throat> kind of like one of the counselors. And there were humiliating things I had to do, like bathe frequently, which, I mean, it's not that I was a, a dirty person, but I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do with my own body. But I... In this situation, in this peculiar place in Wilkes-Barre, California, I got better. And uh, I even went on to college in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania for, for one truncated year. And yes, I did another uh, suicide attempt because life was really painful and I just wanted it to go away. But that one, again, was half-hearted enough so that I didn't take myself out. And then when I rejoined the world back, uh, when I was kicked out of college and got back to New York City, then I made a life for myself. Right now, you should know that I am an extremely positive and happy person. Uh, but the specter of depression, you know, I, I know it inside out and it afflicts my daughter, and it afflicts my three grown grandchildren, and it afflicted my son who died of craziness and alcoholism. So I guess I just want to say that it's possible to have this weight, to have this crap, to have this pain, and to live long enough to get through it. Hospital doors clang 
and slam shut behind me. Lights flash, electronic alarms beep. A nurse stands in front of me. We are here to help you. This is Mary. She will take you to an examining room. I follow Mary like a little lamb tethered to my host. Felt like I was being led to slaughter. She leads me to a cubicle, yanks the beige drapes apart, and motions me to take a seat. Put your clothes in this bag. She hands me a plastic bag, has my name written in black magic marker. Huh? What the fuck? I wanted to scream and curse. These people, these people are supposed to be helping me. Why take away my clothes, my shoes, my purse, my hair clip, and put me in a sheer, flimsy, tattered sheet that opens in the back? I'm so cold, my toes feel like frozen blue ice cubes. My hair is hanging in my eyes. I'm missing my bra and panties because they used to hold my lady parts close and snug. Two mental health experts come in and question me. Why are you here? What brings you to our hospital? God, please help me. Please help me have the right words. Six weeks earlier, I was also lying naked, covered by a sheet on a massage table. The irony of it all, the similarity of these two events reverberates in my head over and over, circulating, recirculating, circling around in my mind and my body. At six foot five, my massage therapist was a giant, easily overpowering my five foot three inch frame. He hurled his huge mass on top of me. I was laying face down on the massage table. I was expecting healing touch, warm human hands, needing the tension from my weary muscles, not a sexual assault. In this most vulnerable position, he attacked me. Fight, flee, freeze, or fuck. Those are the choices psychiatrists say we can make in any traumatic situation. I froze. I left my body. Hovering above near the ceiling, I saw him attacking my still, my tiny little nakedness. An enormous hairy spider sprawling and pinning my limbs to the table. There was nothing I could do to stop him until I screamed, get off me now. I clenched my teeth. I rolled and rolled and rolled, squirming like a spinning bug trapped in his spider's web. I clutched the sheet, get the hell off me. He staggered backwards. He was stunned. Perhaps he was shocked that the prey would create such a fuss. He might be overheard by staff. I shrieked again, get the fuck off me. He left the room. Once I dressed, I went to the front desk and I reported this horrible, ugly event to the spa management. 
Now, over a month later, I knew I had to file a police report. If he would do this to me, who else had he accosted? Who else would he assault? Who else would he hurt? I figured the safest way to report would be to go to the hospital, have them call the police. Surely the emergency room staff would know how to keep me safe and help me. Here I was in the psych ward at the hospital. Instead of help, I got a migraine. I felt the nightmare choking me once again, assaulted, attacked again, questioned as though I had made up the entire fucking story. I was locked up, stripped again, a camera screening my every move, that fish-eyed lens capturing me, my blinks, my breath, my sighs. I was brave, I was strong, I was courageous. I told my truth. I held fast to my sanity in this insane, bizarre medical intervention. Surely, surely one day, maybe one day, he will be held accountable for what he did to me, to my body, to my mind, to my soul, how he hurt me. For now, I felt victimish again. If this should ever happen to me next time, next time, next time, no, no, no. I will never let this ever happen to me again. I didn't allow it to happen to me the first time. A vile, nasty, creepy, less than human attacked me. He stole from me. This is my truth. I am beautiful. I am bold. And I will never, ever, ever let someone hurt me like this again. I am present. I am not a victim. I am a light. I am a victor. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to our three storytellers today, Sharon Eisner, Nishama Franklin, and Linda Durrett. Thank you very much, ladies, for your stories. As always, check the show notes for upcoming events. We've got all sorts of cool stuff happening. Most of our events are on Sunday evenings. And of course, you are always invited to our Friday afternoon swap shop. It is at 3 p.m. Eastern if you want feedback on your stories or a space, a safe space a supportive space, a helpful space to talk about this craft. And that is all for episode number 80. Boom.